say this with me. This is God's written living word to me. It's what he thinks about me. It reveals who God says I am and tells me what God says I can have. Because it's how God thinks, I choose to act and believe on what I'll read. And therefore, I'm transformed. Amen. The series we're in called Wineskins, I'm teaching this because of the years that I spent in bondage and the hell of growing up as a young Christian embroiled in legalism and traditional religious teaching. Many recent surveys over the last couple of decades and in particular the last 10 years, when people are asked about their feelings regarding the local church and Christianity, go something like this. Well, I don't go to church or I don't believe in the Christian message because I find it irrelevant to my life. I find it boring and I find it judgmental, even hateful. I submit to you that it's our responsibility as a local church here in this north area to be life-giving and to change that view that people have of the local church. We're not going to change it for everybody, but everybody that comes into contact with Genesis and with you and with me, I pledge, I'm making a commitment that I'll change. I'll be a part of changing that attitude that people have about the Christian message and going to church. What I'm going to share with you this morning and what I've been sharing in this series has brought me a new sense of joy. It's brought me a stronger sense of God's presence. It's brought me victory and temptation, a new appreciation for what Jesus did for me, an exciting awareness that he's with me all day long. And it's brought a renewed desire to share my faith with others in a very simple way. Paul said in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Last week we talked about a paradigm shift. I'll summarize it. We used the passage where Jesus said, you have to put new wine in new wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the old wineskin and both will be ruined. And so we talked about this idea of a paradigm shift for the local church. Let me summarize. Jesus came neither to change our behavior or to start a new religion. He came to redeem back to God a fallen world and our lost innocence. Now behind that good news, there's a backstory. We talked about it in brief last week and I want to expound on it this morning. It opens in the book of Genesis with three people. You'll find it in Genesis chapter one. We know those three individuals as God the Father, God the Son, in God the Holy Spirit. Let me give you a picture of how most Christians think of that trinity, that those three individuals. Okay, so we put God up here, all right? He's, he's the big one. He's in charge. Then he sent Jesus to the earth sort of as a stopgap measure because he was mad. God was mad. God was going to fry the earth and everybody on it. So Jesus one day said, no, God, don't do that. I'll go and I'll die for their sins. So Jesus goes and he takes on human form and he dies for our sins. On the third day, he's raised. The Bible says that he ascends back to the Father and is at his right hand. So here's God and Jesus. 
Now, God's a little bit in the background because, you know, he's God. And, and if we could, you know, he'd be like up here because God is bigger than Jesus. And Jesus is at God's right hand in a sort of subordinate position. Oh, yeah, and then there's this thing called, depending on which Bible translation you're reading from, maybe the King James, the Holy Ghost. That's kind of weird. <laughs> and we don't want too much to do with a Holy Ghost, so, you, you know, we just kind of keep him over here, you know. That's the Holy Ghost. And this is our picture of how it all began. This is our backstory. So God was mad. Jesus came and interceded. He died. He took the penalty of it. He rose from the dead. He's back at the right hand of the Father. Oh, and then Jesus has since sent this third person who kind of scares us. And he does weird things to people. He makes them roll on the floor. I mean, if you get too involved with him, there's people that even believe that he talks to them. And they talk back. That's just weird. Holy Ghost. And I submit to you that that is not the Bible revelation of the Trinity or of how it all began at all. I'm going to make an adjustment here. And then I'll be right back with you. We've got to move a little bit of equipment around. But I want to show you the Bible revelation. There's God the Father. There's God the Son. And you know what? <laughs> that ghost... He is with us. He does indwell us. But these three are in perfect unity. They're in perfect communication. They have perfect love. They have perfect joy. They're not mad. They're not angry. They're not upset. They're not having a bad day. God the Father God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the revelation of Genesis, when it all begins to unfold, and when it begins, it, and we miss this, is that when God created man, he created Adam and Eve to come right into the middle of this. The Bible says that God would come down in the cool of the day into the garden, and he would talk to Adam. They'd communicate. They'd talk to one another, just like I'm talking to you now. And Adam and Eve were right with God in perfect communication, love, perfect love, perfect joy, perfect peace. God said, hey, Adam. One day he told him, why don't you go name everything? Adam said, cool. <laughs> Where do I start? What should I do? Do I start with those little things that are crawling? God said, I don't know, whatever you think. Call him whatever you'd like. The Bible says Adam was in such perfect unity with God the Father, God the Son, and, and the Holy Spirit that he went out and he just named everything. That's pretty cool. So here's this love triangle that's full of peace, full of joy, full of togetherness and unity and purpose, design, eternal, forever. And then is introduced a factor that we know in the book of Genesis as free will. And God says to Adam, look, I've given you everything in this garden. It's perfect. 
Oh, and by the way, ladies, you'll love this. When he made the woman, he put Adam to sleep, took a rib out of his side, he fashioned the woman. By the way, the word in the Hebrew there means built. Have you ever heard a guy say, man, she's built? That's scriptural. That's a, that's a godly thing. See, it's only ungodly in your mind because of what happened after this perfect unity that they had. But in Adam's mind, when God brought Ad, uh, Eve to Adam, he said, ooh la la, she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Good job, God. And by the way, God put Eve to sleep. God put Adam to sleep when he created Eve. He didn't have anything to say about it. God didn't ask Adam's opinion. How many of you guys have ever felt like in marriage, after you said, I do, you had a rude awakening? <laughs> this thing you brought me, Lord, has changed. <laughs> she wants to do everything her own way today because tomorrow it'll be different. She'll do it a different way. God said, Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. He didn't say lonely. He didn't create Adam lonely. He created him alone. There's a great deal of difference. There was no loneliness in this. You see this? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have perfect unity, perfect love, perfect sense of togetherness and peace and fullness. Adam and Eve were right in the center of that with them. Perfect communication all day long. There was no loneliness God brings Eve into the middle of all that and says, here, Adam, here's Eve for you. And then he introduces free will and says, Adam, oh, I forgot to mention that after he created Eve, Genesis records how that as part of what God put in the garden for them, in addition to the food and the animals and the beauty and all that, that there were stones, diamonds and uh, tarp topaz and uh, what are some of the other ones? Rubies and emeralds and pearls. How many of you know that wasn't for Adam? Why did God put all those stones in a garden? For the woman. Imagine going shopping every day and just picking up. Oh, today I want to wear some, some topaz. And Adam, look at this diamond I found. Could you, could you make a way for me to have it on my finger? That was all for the woman. So here there's this perfect relationship going on, and God introduces free will into it and says, Adam, I've created all of this for you and your wife Eve. Only do not eat of this tree. So we pick up the story there and we know what happened. And that changes everything. And the Bible says that now Adam is estranged from this beautiful, perfect unity. And they no longer have this. Jesus details the beauty of this relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in his prayer in John's Gospel, chapter 17. An incredible chapter that you must read to understand the beauty of this. N.T. Wright, a Scottish theologian, has written a book called Simply Good News. In reading it, I felt that there were a number of points that would be helpful to us in our study here about new wine. And so I'm going to share many of those with you, some verbatim and by quote, and others that I'm lifting from the book and putting into my own words. Our idea of good news has subtly changed over the years. We've made it about here's how you should live, here's how you should pray, 
Here's the techniques for helping you become a better Christian because now that you're fallen, the whole idea of Jesus coming, okay, the whole idea of Jesus leaving this perfect, wonderful, incredible union with the Father and the Holy Ghost was so that he could start a new religion. This is our backstory. This is what we think. Show us how to live, teach us how to pray, and tell us here are the techniques for being a better person, a better wife, a better husband. And in particular, here's how to make sure that you're on the right track to happiness after you die. So take this advice, say this prayer, and you'll be saved. And then when you die, you won't go to hell, you'll go to heaven. How am I doing? Is that pretty much our backstory of how this all happened and the tree and the fall and Jesus comes and he starts this new religion called Christianity and tells us how to live and how to score it big when we do die. Here's the problem with all of that backstory. That's not good news. That's good advice. Jesus didn't say much about heaven, at least not the kind that we hear about in our traditional religious sense. His references were almost always about heaven coming to earth. In other words, the kingdom of God coming to earth rather than us escaping to a faraway place. People assume today, because this is what the Western church is largely taught, That Christianity is a religion, it's a moral system, it's a philosophy, and most of all, it's about giving good advice on how to change your behavior. However, Jesus never taught that. Jesus taught that the good news was about something that would radically transform people and make the world a different place. Because remember, when Adam and Eve took of the tree and fell and committed sin. That wasn't just a personal thing. Sin entered the universe. Sin entered the whole world. And the world and the creatures, the bugs, the animals, the trees, everything fell and became subject then to evil and to sin. Not just Adam. Not just Eve. So, in our religious teaching, we have this backstory that what Jesus came to do was to change our behavior and save us and give us life after death. And we'll rejoin this union up here that Jesus is back in heaven now with God. And, you know, so Jesus, he died for us and then he, he did this. He came back in to the presence of the Father and he said, now, Holy Spirit, you go down there and you be with my church and... You help them uh, behave well. And then when they die, if they've behaved well enough, they'll go to heaven to be with the Father. There's our backstory. And Jesus never taught that. And what he did say about heaven, he was really talking far more about his kingdom here on earth than he was a place that we're going to escape to. And by the way, of course, our gospel has been that we, the Christians, I mean the real ones that believe God, we're going to escape and everybody else that chose not to believe God, they're going to get burnt. They're going to fry, they're going to go to hell. This is our backstory. Can you see why your unbelieving friends would not find church very exciting, very relevant, that they might find it boring and certainly judgmental? We've got to ask ourselves, is this the backstory of the Bible? Is this what Jesus taught? Because if we don't get our backstory right, then the good news won't be right. Here's the deal that's not the backstory, our traditional religious way of thinking about this. And secondly, we have not been preaching good news, we've been giving good advice. And here's the problem with that. You can debate the merits of religion or moral systems, but you can't do that with good news. It either happened or it didn't. Most people treat the Christian gospel as an option. 
I, I'll, I'll take it if I feel inclined. I feel inclined to have good advice. Uh, I, I feel inclined to accept the spiritual journey. I need a good system of morality. I need a retirement plan. I need a retirement plan. Or I need the security that when this world is over, I'm not going to go to hell. But see, that's optional. It's all, we, we can debate that on its merit. And that is not the good news that Paul preached. When Paul preached the good news, he wasn't preaching an option. He wasn't giving good advice about rules, something that you might wish to do. He was announcing news. What was that news? Keep in mind, what makes the good news good news is dependent on the backstory. So let's go back in the story. How did the backstory start? God, in fellowship and perfect union with his son and the Holy Spirit, they weren't doing this, they were doing this. And the Holy Spirit was included in that. And then God created us and he invited us right into the middle of this. Now, unfortunately, we messed up. But this never changed. This never changed in the heart and mind of God as his purpose for us. This was always what God's intention was. The garden wasn't a fantasy. It wasn't a plan A or B or C. The garden was an expression of God's heart of the kind of loving union and relationship he wants to have with every human being that's ever been created. That's the backstory. Now, what Adam and Eve did when they fell and sinned certainly jeopardizes that fellowship. But you've got to understand that in Jesus' coming, he didn't come to start a new religion or even just to forgive people and take them back to heaven someday as a security system. He came to restore everything that was lost. Paul announced it this way, something's happened that has changed the world. This is something that will radically transform and, ad and adjust our entire lives, what's happened. This good news, this isn't about a new religion, rather it's about a different God, one who is living and not dead, one who has inserted himself into our world and into our lives personally, and he's removed all that was broken in fact, he's removed the very cause of everything that has failed, and that is sin. This isn't about getting people to heaven and teaching them to behave along the way. This is about God revealing and uncovering himself in Jesus. He laid down his life. And when Jesus laid down his life and he died on that cross and he was raised again, what he did was to reunite us in perfect unity with the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. He brought us right back in to what God had designed in the beginning before the fall ever happened. Jesus laid down his life, and in doing so, he redeemed us back into the Trinity. Now, all you need to do is go to John's Gospel, chapter 17, on your own, this week, read it, and you will find the backstory. You will find what has happened since the fall and Jesus coming and revealing God to us. When Jesus said, hey, look, I do nothing unless I see the Father doing it. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What he was saying is, God's not mad. God's not out there just waiting to send somebody to hell. God designed a solution. God, from the foundations of the world, before he ever created the world, he knew this was going to happen. And he designed a plan. And he said, when this happens, if man chooses to fall, because he did not predestinate that, he said, I am going to take care of it myself. I will come into it. I will change it. 
I will become the God who is alive. I will redeem humankind to myself and I will put them right back into relationship with myself and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Once people grasp those events about the Messiah's death and resurrection, it transforms everything about how they're living right now. That initial explosive event and God setting everything right, not only for you but for the world, is the gospel that Paul preached and announced. It's good news. It's good news when you announce God came into our world and he has changed everything. He didn't just make you right, he made the world right. He didn't just set up a security system based on behavior. No, in fact, he didn't do that at all. He didn't create another religion. God came into this thing and he did what you and I couldn't do. He redeemed it all back to himself. How many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis? Oh, sure, and you certainly ought to be since this great series of movies, Narnia, the the Chronicles of Narnia. I mean, if you've never read the book, you've probably seen the movies, the books. That's the author, C.S. Lewis. Listen to C.S. Lewis regarding this great relationship that we now have with God. He said, and I quote, and by the way, this quote from C.S. Lewis is the memorial tablet on his gravestone at Westminster Abbey. Quote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. We're not talking about a new religion or a system of works or morals. We're not talking about negotiating negotiating anything. God did it. It's not up for review. He didn't ask our opinion, just like he didn't ask Adam's opinion when he created Eve. He said, I'm going to redeem my people. I'm going to change everything, and I'm going to be the God that comes into their life. They're not going to chase me or pursue me. They're not going to receive me. I'm going to receive them back into my presence, back into perfect unity with me. John's Gospel, chapter 17. You must read it. Luke, chapter 19, verse 10. Look with me. I think it's on your hand out there. For the Son has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Notice it doesn't say those who were lost. That's important. Now there are some translations that say those who were lost. The most reliable, word-for-word, accurate Greek renderings say that which was, not those who were. You see, the difference is this. That which was includes those who were. But if it's just those who were, that does not include that which was. You got that right. Do I need to say that again? If the translation is those who were, that doesn't include that which was. But if actually it says that which was, and that's what he came to redeem unto himself, then that includes not only those who were, but all that that was lost. Okay, let's, let's get to the nitty-gritty here. In Christ, in what he did and what he accomplished, Sin was not just covered, which is the word atonement. Sin was removed. There's a difference. It's the word propitiation. When you read in the scripture, in the New Testament, 
Various scriptures, there's about eight of them that use the word that Christ atoned. It's not atoned for our sin, it's he was a propitiation for our sin. The difference is this. In atonement in the Old Covenant, the atonement or sacrificing of animals would cover sin until the next sin. Are you, are you with me? Are you getting this? When you atone for sin, you just cover it over until the next sin. Or in the case of the Jewish people, in the Hebrew practice, until the next time in the temple that the priest had to go in and make atonement for sin. You see, in the Hebrew religion, the Jewish people had all sorts of systems and processes for laws and atoning and appeasing God. And one of them, of course, were offerings that the high priest would go into the temple and make weekly, daily, some, in some cases, weekly, monthly, and yearly, annually for the congregation to atone for their sin. It never removed the people's sins. It just covered over them, gave them a little space with God until the next atonement could take place. Dear ones, do you recognize something? That's what we've been practicing. The Western church has been practicing just another version of atonement based on an old system that God has since done away with. Jesus did not set up a system of atoning for sin by which if you're good enough, when you get to the end of life, you've got a fire insurance policy and he'll take you to heaven. Dear ones, he was not going to leave that up to you or to your behavior or risk it to whether or not you and I would decide whether or not we were worthy of it. He did it all. Jesus paid the price. And he redeemed us back into perfect unity and fellowship with the Father and the Son. Read it, John chapter 17, this week. Please, do yourself a favor. You will read John 17 in a whole new way of light, I promise you. So in Christ, sin was removed. Turn to Colossians chapter 1 with me. Colossians chapter 1. In Christ, sin wasn't just forgiven or atoned for, covered over, it was removed. Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading in verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Notice, he's not just somebody sent from God as a messenger, which is what a lot of religions teach. Jesus was a holy man. He was a good person. He is God. He created everything. By him, everything holds together. Dear ones, listen. If it weren't for Jesus, there'd be no universe. If it weren't for Jesus, everything would just float away in space and be ruined. If it weren't for Jesus, Jesus is God. He created everything. He was there at the beginning. And he's made everything. And all things were created for him. Do you suppose all things being created for him include you and me? You mean God created me? Jesus created me? In the beginning, Jesus saw me, knew I was coming, created me, loved me, set up a perfect union with me. Don't you realize that you were in Adam? Don't you realize that this picture right here of the Trinity and Adam and Eve was God's plan for you? You aren't outside of that. 
That's what's wrong with our backstory. We see ourselves a couple of millennium down the ways from Adam and Eve and that this perfect, wonderful relationship that started in Genesis chapter 1 that we read about doesn't apply to us. Dear ones, we were in God's heart. We were in his mind. We were there. That's how much he loves us. And I submit to you, he doesn't want any of you to die without him and go to hell. Not one of you. He doesn't want your neighbor to die and go to hell. He doesn't want your family member to die and go to hell. Now they have a choice, but here's the beauty. He paid the penalty. He set everything right. Let's keep reading rather than me just try to tell you everything. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Did you know that's you too? You're held together in him. The reason you have a life is because of Jesus. The reason you got a bonus this week was because of Jesus. <laughs> the reason you have a healthy body is because of Jesus. The reason you have a good car to drive is because of Jesus. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He's the firstborn from among the dead. He's the what? He's the firstborn from among the what? If he's the first, who's the second? You. You were co-crucified? You were co-buried and you were co-raised from the dead with Jesus. See, dear ones, when he uttered on the cross, it is finished, he meant it. That wasn't just, okay, I've spent my 33 years on earth. I've taught the people. I established a new Christian religion. I'm ready to die. Take me home. I'm done that's how I used to read that. But now I understand that my backstory, if I get my backstory right of why God created the earth, why God created the heavens, what was happening there when there was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and He created Adam, that I was there in the heart and mind of God, that He loved me perfectly. And John 17 tells us the mission of Christ was not to forgive sins. The mission of Christ was to bring us, you and me, back into this, in perfect unity, face to face with God and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He, he is all of that. Jesus is that. Okay, now watch. He is the firstborn from among the dead. That means you're next. Verse 20. No, let's go. Let's see. Verse, what, where, where was I? Somebody help me. 18? Okay, look at verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, through who? Now, this is not a trick question. Through who? Jesus. Through Jesus... It pleased God to reconcile to himself all things. It gives God pleasure. God rejoiced. He shouted. He did a dance. All of heaven and all of the angels rejoiced. When Jesus finished his mission, and it pleased God that through Christ... In him, he's reconciled us back to himself. Look at this, verse 20. Whether on earth or in heaven, where do you live? Does that include you? How about the stars and the heavenly bodies? Does it include that? How about the animals? Have you ever read that verse? The lamb shall lie down with the lion. How come the lion isn't going to eat the lamb? <laughs> 
He won't need to. He won't be hungry. And he won't be hungry for suffering or pain or blood. That's all gone away. Because in Christ, all things, both in heaven and in earth, have been reconciled back to God in Christ. Look at this, verse 20. Whether in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. Oh my goodness. Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. Now watch, verse 21. Look at it. And you say, that's me who were once alienated, unhostile, where? In your, where? How were you hostile? Where were you hostile? See, God wasn't mad at you. God's never wanted to fry you. God's never wanted to burn you up and send you to hell. That's never been his purpose. That's not the backstory. From the very beginning, before the earth was ever created, God had a plan, knowing we would fall, to redeem us. And he did it through Christ. And he wasn't mad at you. And he didn't send Jesus as a stopgap to stand in the way and stop God's wrath from coming on us. God said, man, I'm going to take care of this myself. I'm going to send Jesus. And Jesus is going to reconcile everything back to me. You who were hostile in your mind, doing evil deeds, he has now what? Read it aloud. He has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and beyond reproach in him. Let me say it this way. He didn't forgive your sins. He removed your sins. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. Not cover them Remove them. Now, watch this. You've, you've heard this verse. We use it at Christmas. John chapter 1, verse 29. Who said this? Behold the Lamb of God. Who said that? Remember? John the Baptist announcing Jesus coming to the River Jordan to be baptized, right? Behold the Lamb of God. Can anybody complete the sentence? Joshua, who takes away... The sin, not sins, plural. We're not talking about behavior change. We're talking about the fall. We're talking about what was wrong with not only humanity, but all of creation. Behold, the Lamb of God who removes everything that's broken, everything that has failed, not just with those who were lost, but with that which was lost. And he's redeemed it back to himself. There's going to be a day when all the birds fly freely, eat freely, and you'll never find one alongside the road. There'll never be little rabbits being run over by camels and chariots. You'll never see any roadkill anymore. You'll never see the lion eating the lamb. Won't happen. <laughs> It'll be a perfect universe in a perfect place of the kingdom in perfect unity with the father and by the way you and I will be there in perfect relationship with God here's the deal he's already done it it is finished Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. So that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Not just those who sign up for the club. Not just those who change their behavior and start coming to church and being good. What Jesus did, what Jesus reconciled, is for the entire world. 
and for all of humankind for all time. All right. If he's done that, if he's a propitiation and not just an atonement, if we've got our backstory right, and this is actually the good news that Paul and Jesus announced good news! God's taken care of it. Good news. God's alive. Good news. What man couldn't do for yourself, God has done in Christ. And you're not only forgiven, you are restored into perfect relationship back with the Father. It's already done, and he's disarmed all the principalities and powers who would try to say otherwise. You just, they're beneath your feet. You tell them where to go in Jesus' name. They have no place anymore in your life. You have power over all principality and power. You're seated with Christ in heavenly places. He's done it all. Jesus did it all. Do you realize how this makes Jesus, puts Jesus in his right place? Do you realize how glorious this makes Jesus? All I want to do is talk about Jesus now. All I want to tell people is about Jesus. Yesterday, I was at, at a little uh, party, going away party for somebody going in, into the military. And I was sitting there at the table and somehow the subject of religion came up. And this individual said, yes, I have a sister who, who, who tries to get me to believe in her religion. But, you know, I just, uh, I just don't believe. I'm a kind of scientific guy and I just need proof. And I said, you know what? I just turned to him and I said, you know what? Here's the beautiful thing. I said, God's goodness and how much God loves us is not based on the fact, and by the way, this individual already knew by that time that I was pastoring a church because we had exchanged those courtesies of telling uh, about our lives. I said, you know, here's the beauty of it. God doesn't love me because I go to church and doesn't not love you because you don't go to church. He just loves us both the same. And he's reconciled us to himself. <laughs> and then something happened and changed there at the table and in the conversation. And I didn't, I didn't get a chance to say. So he's not mad at you. And you know the proof that you need? I had already found out that's it, that this individual had medical problems, that they were fighting, they had beat cancer, but now something else just as bad had come back and they're struggling with this. I was going to reach over and take their hand and say, could I just prove to you that he is alive. Could I just pray for you? I didn't get that far, but I know what I did say registered because people just don't hear that. People don't hear that God just loves you regardless. He's already, you are already reconciled back into this perfect trinity of God's love, his favor, and his oneness through what Jesus did. So it's pulling back the curtain. Dear ones, listen, when you witness, when you share your faith, it's not a matter of preaching, behavior change, and getting people to stop doing what they're doing and start doing the right thing and then sign up and come to our church. It's not about that. It's about facilitating the work of the Holy Spirit in their life as you develop relationships, sincere relationship with people, and just helping pull back that curtain where people can see what Jesus did and how God has reconciled back to himself everything so it begs the question I told you we'd go here today and I'll do my best just briefly 1st John 1st John because I know when we start talking like this 1st John chapter 1 verse 9 comes into view and we need a radical shift in our mind. Remember, we were alienated in our mind. He brought us back and reconciled us who were once hostile in our where? Mind. We need a radical shift in our mind regarding forgiveness. Now, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Let's read it together, everybody together, out loud. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Many of you have memorized it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the word confess there does not mean to ask forgiveness. I ought to just stop right there and say, come back next week. But I said that last week, and I promise you I deal with this. 
The word confess used there is homologeo, and it simply means to agree with God. Dear ones, what you have to understand about 1 John when it was written, it was written because of Gnosticism that was prevailing and infiltrating the church of that day. What is Gnosticism? Well, it has its roots back to the beginning of the Christian church. It comes from the Greek word meaning knowledge. It taught that salvation is achieved through special knowledge, gnosis, that the unknowable God was far too pure or perfect to have anything to do with the material universe, which was considered evil, that an evil God was formed out of this perfect God and that that evil God actually created the universe. I'm telling you what the Gnostics believed. And this began to infiltrate the church of John's time. Now, since, according to these Gnostics, matter is evil, deliverance from material form was only attainable through this special knowledge that you could only get through special Gnostic teachers. So, Gnostics do not look to salvation from sin. They don't even admit sin. They don't believe in the original sin or present sin. Gnostics don't look to salvation from sin, but rather to the ignorance of which sin is a consequence. And so they just believe if you could perfect your knowledge and raise your consciousness to a level where you're just not even conscious of sin anymore, then uh, you could be like God. It denies the incarnation of God as the Son, and in so doing it denies the true efficacy of the propitiation that Christ became for us. You see, if Jesus isn't God, then he can't be a propitiation for our sins, and you and I are still lost in our sins. Here's the meaning of John 1, verse 9. If you agree with God, if you just admit, keep in mind the Gnostic setting that they were in, saying all you need is higher knowledge. God is, is, is too pure and holy to be involved with man. The universe was created by an evil God. Now keep this in mind. So he says in the previous verse, if you admit that you have sin, okay, then the light will come. So verse 9, if you agree with God that you've sinned, if you agree that he's done what's necessary to redeem you back to himself, and how that through Christ God died for us, and that he rose for our justification, Romans, your sins are forgiven. This is not talking about a routine of going to God every time you sin and asking forgiveness. Very simply, listen to me, the word confess does not mean to tell God and ask forgiveness for your sin. It means to agree with what God has done. God has reconciled us. Jesus paid the price. Jesus has paid it all but we have built whole denominations on verse 9. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Some of you came from a religious tradition that to this day still teaches that you need to regularly go to confession to tell the priest and God about your sins so that you can get forgiveness. Dear ones, you don't get forgiveness. You are forgiven. If what Jesus did on the cross was insufficient, then why don't we go back to the Jewish system of animal sacrifice? Come on. I mean, if what Jesus did wasn't sufficient, then let's go back to animal sacrifice. If what Jesus did wasn't sufficient, then why don't we go back and make the Lord's Prayer a template for forgiveness? Why, when Jesus comes back, does the Scripture say he's not going to deal with sin? If sin is such an issue for God, and it's not been taken care of, and we need to confess it and get forgiveness, why then, in the Scripture, does it say God is not going to deal with sin when he comes back? 
Okay, I, I've got you hanging. All right, look at it. Look at it. It's, it's in your handout. We'll show it on the screen, won't we, Jeff? Hebrews. Can we show it on the screen? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You see, salvation isn't getting your sins forgiven today or maintaining your relationship with God. Salvation is receiving eternal life. Salvation is receiving your redeemed innocence. Salvation is returning to your likeness in God's image. Salvation is being restored to the way Jesus and God set up the kingdom in the first place. Jesus didn't come to rescue us from sin. Rather, he came to redeem our likeness with God in Christ so that sin would no longer have any effect on our lives. You don't get forgiven. You are forgiven. If moral behavior got you to heaven, then you could claim, I reconciled myself back to God. The good news is that he reconciled us to himself. And there's no amount of you climbing in the confessional booth that's going to change what Jesus did. And he said, it's finished. God reconciled me. You say, well, oh my God. Oh my God, my my whole Christian walk. I understand, I was there. (laughs) Been there, been there even recently. What am I supposed to do when I sin? How do I handle that? I, I feel such brokenness, I feel such distance from God. Well, first of all, realize there's no distance. Even when you sin, don't you realize, dear ones, look, 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 look at this. He's reconciled us. Read John 17. He's reconciled us back into perfect unity. When you sin in your flesh and with your mind, which is not yet redeemed, your spirit is, but your mind and your flesh aren't. They will be when Christ returns. You don't leave this. When you sin, you don't get up from this and leave and then have to do this. Oh God, please, I confess my sin. Please receive me back to yourself. Okay, what do I need to do? And then go and do some good works, and then maybe after a week, I feel better. I'm back here now. Until the next time I sin. Some of us would never be seated here. I mean, you're struggling with some thought patterns and some habits right now where you'd never be in the chair. (laughs) Been there, done that, still have things in my life that I wrestle with. But here's the beauty. The strength to deal with my individual habits and sins comes from being here in this relationship, knowing I'm already accepted, knowing I'm already perfectly loved, knowing that nothing I will ever do in my behavior or otherwise will change what God alone accomplished in Christ and that I'm seated in Him in heavenly places. Knowing that, starting there, gives me a glorious spirit, strength, and victory every day as I purpose to live for Jesus. So what do I do when I sin? I just go to God. I turn right to I'm already here. He's not a long ways off. I just turn to him and say, man, that was stupid, wasn't it? (laughs) Man, and Lord, you told me not to do that. And look, I'm, I'm right back there, and I'm having those thoughts, those feelings again. I'm ashamed. And he says, son, here's a dose of the Holy Ghost. Let me rub a little bit more of my love. Let me pull a little bit more of that hurt, those thought patterns out of your mind that you've been steeped in. Let me rub more of my love and my understanding and my goodness into you. Now get out there and serve me. Get out there and announce this good news that everybody is reconciled back to me. We've just got to pull back those curtains and let them know. Jesus came neither to change our behavior or start a new religion. He came to redeem back to God a fallen world and our last innocence. So here's what I want to leave you with as you go. Do you really want to go back to an old system of just covering sin 
Or are you willing to accept it's finished? God has redeemed it all in Christ. The sin question has been dealt with. I am forgiven, and so I walk in forgiveness. And it's not wrong to say, Lord, I'm so ashamed of something I just did. Just forgive me. But what you need to know is that he's going to say, I did. He's not going to say, okay, well, this week... I want you to go over to Di's house and I want you to do a hundred push-ups and then I want you to call Eric and tell him that you'll drive that truck for him and pick up that food and oh, uh, you need to be nice to your spouse. You need to be nice to your spouse for the next, next couple of days and, and say I love you ten times at least over the next two days. You're never going to hear that. You're only ever going to hear, I did. I did. <laughs> I did. What are you doing when you say, oh God, I'm embarrassed. I, I feel dirty. You're agreeing with God that you've sinned. So you stay in the light. You're not being a Gnostic that there is no sin. You're agreeing. I, I, I need a Savior. You're agreeing. God, I accept what you did when you reconciled me back to God. I agree, God. Therefore, he cleanses all unrighteousness in our agreement. Will you agree with God and what he says about your sin and your place in Jesus? Number one, do you really want to go back to the old system? Number two, won't you just start agreeing with what God already has accomplished? And number three, won't you go out and share this good news, dear ones? Won't you start telling people about this great good news? Won't you start announcing good news instead of giving good advice? Let's stand.